to you all. It is uh, a weird feeling to, for several weeks now, not be with you, to not be with you in person while, while we open up God's word together. And yet I want you to know that you are missed, that you are cared for, that we genuinely are praying for you and await the day when we can gather together again. You know, maybe in, in, in a way that, that I, I might have intellectually recognized but not yet yearned for in my heart for some time is, is the, the wonderful pleasure of gathering with the saints. Uh, and so, so it makes a little bit more sense on uh, now when we read in Acts 2 about how, how every day they, they, they longed for fellowship together and meeting together and breaking of bread and, and listening to the apostles teaching and to pray with one another. I, I, I feel that longing and so I hope you do too. Picture for me this morning, if you would, uh, a tree in my front yard. Okay, it's an apple tree, uh, but, the, but the apples don't look so good. Uh, so I go to Aldi and I buy some delicious gala apples. Okay, uh, you're my neighbor. You're, you're peeking out your window right now. You're, you're watching me get a, a ladder and, and carry out the apples and, and I start super gluing them to my apple tree. Okay, and so for a little bit, I have the best looking apple tree on the block. Uh, uh, those apples look amazing on that tree. But soon, those apples don't look so good. Uh, they aren't connected to the root. And so pretty quickly, it is evident that the fruit on the tree doesn't match what's in the roots. So it is also with the Christian life, right? Eventually, what is on the inside of the person is seen on the outside by his or her life. What does it look like? This is the question I want us to think about this morning. What does it look like to know Jesus? How do we know him uh, in a way that we're not super gluing apples to our trees in our, of our lives? Well, I think that's what John helps us with this morning. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, which is what we are going to be looking at. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 John. Uh, not to be confused with the Gospel of John, uh, which is at the beginning part of the New Testament, but towards the end of the New Testament in some of John's letters. There's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, right? And so this is 1 John, uh, and we're in chapter 2 this morning. And last week we started studying uh, together the book of 1 John, uh, a letter that John, who's one of the 12 disciples, had written to various different Christian communities and churches. And, and in that he's urging them to live lives that match the Savior who has saved them. And so it's likely that John wrote the letter of 1 John in Ephesus sometime between 85 and 100 A.D., and so the question immediately comes to us uh, as, well, why would we read such an old letter today? And we do so because not only is it helpful for us, we also know that it is God's word. And so it is living and active and it benefits us as we read it and study it because it teaches us, it corrects us, and it trains us to live lives that follow after Jesus. 
And so John is writing to a church or, or a group of churches who are really in crisis because they're being divided by false teaching. And we know that that's important because what we believe is ultimately what we live out. And so to believe false things about God, about salvation, about what the Christian life is all about, it leads us to live lives that are antithetical and opposite to God. And so some of the wrong things that were being taught is, is something called Gnosticism, uh, that, that taught that the body doesn't matter, uh, that our physical bodies aren't important, that we are just spiritual beings that our souls are the only thing that is important. And so uh, that has implications of the Son of God, of Jesus the Messiah coming in the flesh. And, and it has implications for our own lives and what we do on this earth. And so these are some of the things that John addresses. Uh, and, and to aid us in that work, we are studying um, a one verse that's going to help us throughout the whole entire study of First John. And so that's our verse of the series. And so that's 1 John 3, 23. Uh, if you uh, see it on the screen, you're, you're, I encourage you to, even while you're, you are um, sitting in your living room, to encourage your kids to read it along with us. But let's read it together. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Well, let's pray for our time in God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that through your spirit, attending to your word, you would help us to get a, a refreshing glance at what it means to know you and live for you. God, help us to see how Jesus is so key as our advocate this morning before you every single time that we sin. And Lord, that you would be working in our hearts gospel transformation for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing I want you to get out of 1 John chapter 2 and the first six verses, if, if there's just one thing that you could walk away with and say, this is what my life is going to be like this week, here's what I want you to walk away with. And so you'll see this on your screens here in just a moment. And here's the author's big idea. Don't live in sin. Look to Jesus as your righteous advocate to help you abide in him and obey his word. That's what I think John is trying to communicate this morning. Don't live in sin. Instead, look to Jesus as your righteous advocate to help you abide in him and to obey his word. And so we're going to look at this kind of just in two different, really easy ways. We're going to look at the first two verses, at, at Jesus as our advocate, and then we're going to see in verses three through six uh, a litmus of obedience. So let me read our text together this morning, and, uh, and we'll jump right in. Here's what John writes in 1 John 2, verses 1 to 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his truth, or whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, let's look at Jesus, who is our advocate, in verses 1 and 2. You know, despite uh, initial readings of 1 John 2, uh, John is not a Sunday school teacher for children. John is writing to Christian communities, uh, most likely multiple Christian churches, and he's using family language, okay? It's not demeaning when he says, my little children. It's affectionate. John isn't saying, hey, you little kids, get off my yard. Uh, He's saying, my children. John is connecting with them personally, almost as if they're related, because They are. They are united in Christ. Paul did the same thing to the church in Corinth about the people that he discipled. Uh, Listen to what, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul wrote, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And so John is doing something similar here in 1 John. See, families are designed for parents to train and equip their children. Spiritual parents are are important also in that way. And so if you are a Christian this morning, it's because someone shared the gospel with you and discipled you, like a spiritual parent. And so I'd actually encourage you uh, this afternoon, if you're able to, to reach out to that person who shared the gospel with you and remind them of the good gospel work that they did in your life. In fact, actually later, John writes in 3 John, okay, so the third letter, in 3 John 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in the truth. That's the same thing that John's writing here. He's saying, my little children. John, in fact, is writing this letter so that they won't sin. That's actually one of the major reasons why John is writing this. What John is saying is that, is, that, is that it will help them to walk in the light and not swerve into darkness. And so really, John kind of has a, has a command implied in here. Not only does he hope that they do not sin, but that they really should not sin. John is writing to these Christians so that they do not do what others have done, right? Where they deny uh, important aspects of both Jesus, both as human as, and as the Son of God. And so John is writing to these so that others do not abandon the Christian truths that are taught by the apostles and the lives that are lived out in community. You know, pretty often people ask me, uh, Brian, how do I know God's will for my life? Uh, I actually tell them that, that at least one part of it is extremely clear from 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, Paul writes, 
for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so really, John is writing so that they don't live in sin, but that they would grow in sanctification. In fact, that's what Paul expects Christians to be doing. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You know, I also get another question pretty often that people like to ask me. They say, well, do I need to clean up my life to come to Christ? I understand what they mean. They're asking, do I need to do something or enough somethings for Jesus to accept me? Of course, the answer is, is, is no, that's not how Jesus works. But if they mean, can I accept Jesus and continue to live my life however I want, well, then the answer certainly would be no. We are not meant to live in sin, but to be delivered from it. And so John writes so that these Christians would not sin. You know, at this point, if you are a non-Christian that you're, and you're watching with us this morning, we're so delighted that you're here. Uh, I think it's an honor that of all the things you could be doing or watching on YouTube, that you are considering God's word with us this morning. And so my friend, I wonder what you think about your own rebellion against God. How do you deal with it? How do you get rid of your rebellion? Does your rebellion against God, uh, which the Bible calls sin, uh, does that change how you think God might accept you? See, the truth is that our sin separates us from God. And so we need someone to come and deal with our sin without themselves being sinful. And that person is Jesus. And so if you are someone who recognizes that you have sinned against God, that you have rebelled against God, and, and, and you, like Christians, uh, uh, you too can have a helper for you when you sin. That's what John is actually writing. That person is Jesus the Messiah. So, so won't you come to Jesus today and admit your guilt and turn away from sin and place your hope solely on Jesus for forgiveness today? then the same thing that will be written for the, for the rest of John's letter would be true of you as well. See, we've read in 1 John 1 that Jesus brings us into fellowship with God, with other believers, and it brings joy. That walking in the light isn't denying the existence of sin, it's actually dealing with it. And so instead of denying sin, and, and therefore actually, by implication, as John writes, denying God and denying Jesus, like some were doing in chapter 1, verse 8, John adds about how to deal with sin in its proper way through Jesus in verses 1 and 2. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So to deal with our sin, we have an advocate or, or an, a helper for us. Christ is not a title, or Christ is a title for Jesus. It's not Jesus' last name, okay? And it, so it helps us to understand how Jesus is the helper for us and our advocate. And so when we hear Christ, we should think the Christ, the Messiah, 
The Christ is a unique anointed king from God, the king of Israel. And therefore, Jesus' death and resurrection, which is what happened to, uh, to the Christ, that his death and resurrection influences his role as our helper, as our advocate. And so Jesus, who was incarnate of God, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 John, the one who reveals eternal life to a spiritually dead world of people, which is verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, uh, the Son of God, the Christ, whose bloody death cleanses us from every sin, verse 7 of chapter 1 says, is the very one who is our helper. Maybe you remember uh, the NFL star quarterback, Brett Favre. Do you know what happened to Brett Favre after he retired from the NFL? He went and he coached high school football. Imagine having Brett Favre as your coach. Or, or, or maybe football's not your game. Maybe it's basketball. Imagine Michael Jordan as your junior high basketball coach. Okay, That's just a small glimpse of Jesus the Christ being our advocate. Jesus, having paid for the penalty of our sins on the cross, defeated death, and being raised on the third day, now is in the Father's presence as the eternal high priest who, having atoned for our sins of of his people, now stands as our advocate to make sure that his righteousness covers all of our sin so that we can continue in fellowship with the Father. So for example, I was in college and I didn't use all my meal plans one semester. And so it was the end of the semester for that year. And so I decided to bring 25 of my closest friends to ha- who didn't have a meal plan to come eat with me in the dining hall so I wouldn't lose the money that had been prepaid. And so I stood at the counter and as guys would walk by, I would say, yep, he's on my tab, yep, He's on my tab. Yep, he's on my tab. Uh, Jesus is doing something like that before the Father for us. Uh, Oh, I've got that guy. Yep, my blood covers that guy and that guy. Uh, Yep, that one too. Friends, we should recognize this morning that Jesus doesn't get exhausted by our sin. Jesus isn't with the Father right now thinking, that dumb idiot. Can't he just get it right? No, in fact, Jesus' love for us doesn't stop because of our sin. Jesus' love compelled him to go to the cross for us. He doesn't stop his love once he died and rose from the dead. In the same way, how often do we live by a fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you? type of culture within the church. Or we say, so-and-so will always be like that, and so I just try to avoid them as much as possible. Brothers and sisters, that should not be. Not with us who have fellowship with the Father and the Son because of Jesus' cleansing blood. If we bear the name Christian, we don't have to have a one-strike-and-you're-out policy with people within our body. 
We actually are called to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. So the question this morning is, who do you need to extend greater grace towards in our fellowship? Who do you need to pray for more within the body? How can Jesus, as our advocate and as our helper, shape our love towards one another within our church body? I'm not saying that sin without repentance is okay. I am saying that Jesus' love for us should extend to our love for each other. John is using here in our passage uh, an important and, and kind of big word here, propitiation. Okay, it's only used here in the gospel or in, in the book of 1 John, uh, but he uses it a couple times. Uh, what does propitiation mean? It's really just a big word that describes Jesus removing God's wrath and anger against us because of our sin. Okay, so Jesus is removing it by taking on the full penalty of our sin. This isn't all of Christ's saving work, but it is often overlooked. And I think it's worth taking note of that Jesus is the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice he is taking on the penalty of our sin so that the wrath of God against our sin has been completely satisfied. So John takes the immediate then, the immediate role of Jesus as our advocate for his readers. And then in verse two, he kind of steps back and describes how that's not just unique to the Christians that John is writing to, but it is true of all Christians all over the world. The work of God is not restricted to Jews or to only to Greeks or to any ethical or ethnic or social or racial group. But God's saving activity isn't restricted to just one tiny nation in Palestine, but actually extends to the whole world wherever Christ's people are to be found. And so John's not speaking of universalism here, uh, where everyone is just saved no matter what. Uh, if that were the case, then we wouldn't need to evangelize, we wouldn't need to do missions, and because ultimately none of that would matter. John is saying that people from every tongue and tribe and nation will one day be around the throne of Jesus, whether someone is Jewish or not Jewish. When we turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus and confess our sin, he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that that is the message that we bring to the entire world. And so what we see is that John's love is an expression of Christ's love, which we should imitate. See, John isn't our mediator or our advocate like Jesus is. And yet his love for these Christians is so great that he's writing to them as his dear children so that they do not sin. I wonder, brother and sister, what are ways that you, are investing in the lives of, the, of other Christians in our body? What are ways that you are helping them fight sin? If that idea is even foreign to you, I encourage you to, to take a cue from John. 
Even at the end of his days, his goal was to help Christians grow in their faith. What might you be able to do or be involved in for the sake of other Christians to grow in their faith? The Christian life is a community life, not a siloed life. And so our call is to imitate John's love for other Christians also. Don't live in sin, John is essentially writing, but look to Jesus as our righteous advocate to help us abide in him and obey his word. Let's look at this next part, this litmus obedience in verses three through six. Jesus is the Christ who is our advocate, the one that we need, the the one that we want, but how do we know that we know Jesus? Well, the answer that John gives is that if we really know God, he will have a powerful effect on our daily lives. There were people who left the church that John is writing to, and they believed that true knowledge of God was some superior level thinking that most would not know, but that just doesn't agree with what our passage says. The knowledge of God isn't some mystic vision or some super intellectual insight for the intellectually elite. No, the knowledge of God is made known when we obey his commands. And so what we see is that obedience isn't something spectacular. It's actually the basis of all true Christian service. In a time when people believed that true knowledge of God was secret and few could attain that knowledge, John is just refuting that Gnostic idea. So, but the question for us should be, well, what does it mean to keep Jesus' commands? Is that like the Ten Commandments? No, no, those are tied to Moses' covenant. Well, well then what does it look like? What does it not look like? So let me be really clear this morning. I don't think that obeying Jesus' commands has anything to do with having food restrictions. I don't think it looks like trying to grow a beard or washing your hands before you eat. What does it look like to obey Jesus' word in verse 5? I think it's living a life based upon Jesus' life and teaching. Where we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where we love our neighbors from the love that God has shown us in Christ. So we have a Bible full of descriptions of the love of God and how we live this out. But specifically, John, in the letter of 1 John, is going to highlight how we should lay down our lives for one another like Christ did for us. The heart of the question, what does it mean to keep Jesus' commands, comes down to loving others as an overflow of the way Jesus has loved us and of our love of God. So Christian, Are you willing to join a life group to display that kind of love for others? Are you willing to teach youth or children or even attend Sunday school for the building up of the body together? Uh, Christian, are you willing to disciple college students? 
Or will you make meals for people who are sick? Will you call people in the directory throughout the week just to check on them and to pray with them? Will you call people in your life group or in your Sunday school class just to make sure that they have all the supplies that they need? I think these are just some of the examples of the ways that we are called to love each other. But you might say, well, Brian, I still sin. What does that mean? Well, John is insisting here that we keep God's commands to to love one another, to triumph over sin, and yet he, he makes a really important promise for us coming on here in just a couple chapters in 1 John 3. Where, where John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so, because we are God's children now, uh, praise the Lord, that is amazing. That is not by our own power. It is by the grace of God that that happens. But John is also saying, we're not yet a finished product. Believers are imperfect now since we will be conformed to him on the day when our faith becomes sight. And so that hope provokes believers to follow Jesus all the more now. So we would read this passage incorrectly if we think that knowing God is conditioned upon keeping his commandments. Meaning, Once I have kept all of God's commandments, then I can know God. I think that'd be missing what John is saying. We know that we have come to know God when evidence of knowing him is seen in our lives. When Jesus says that we will know a tree by its fruit, the fruit is the evidence of the type of tree it is. So for example, uh, it's raining this morning. Uh, Just like mud on your tires is evidence of driving through mud, so is our obedience to God evidence that we know him. Keeping the commandments is not a condition of knowing him, as one theologian says, but a sign that one does know him. So it's not a precursor to knowing God, it's actually evidence that you have and do know God. So when John says here in verse 4, if there is no evidence of God, but you say you know God, then you are a liar and the truth isn't in you at all. What is internal will eventually come to the surface of our lives. Jesus made it clear that everyone who abides in him will bear fruit, he says in John chapter 15, the the gospel of John chapter 15. So if there is no fruit to be shown, we should ask why not. So believer, in what ways do our lives tend to make us liars? In what ways do we say that we follow God but it is not evidenced in our lives. There's this false idea today that Jesus can be your savior, but not the Lord of your life. 
I hear it regularly where people say that, that there are just areas that they haven't given over to Jesus to be Lord over yet. But friends, to say Jesus is your Savior, but that he bled and died for you, but your finances, he just isn't touching. Or, or your dating life, it just isn't going to be influenced by him. Or, or the way that you raise your children aren't any of Jesus' business. Or, or even that Sunday is fun day or family day more than it's the Lord's day. Friends, I think that that reveals that you want Jesus on your terms, but not his. It isn't a description of Jesus that he obeys what we want of him, but that we as his sheep hear his voice and we follow him. To say that Jesus is your savior, but not the Lord over all of your life, is actually to not want Jesus as your savior, but only as your servant. See, the reality is that we serve him. He is our king. He is the lamb who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and worship. And God is most praised and most glorified and most honored when we obey him and love him and trust him and enjoy him instead of when he is ignored or pushed aside or locked out of parts of our lives. And so if we say that we walk in the light with Jesus, then why are there areas that we don't want Jesus to look into? to have a say in, or to reign in that area of our lives. See, John is not writing of moral perfection in verse 5, where we somehow cease from sinning. Uh, Certainly, since we have not yet been changed, and that John says later in, in the very next chapter, we are not yet what we will be, uh, we cannot say presently that we do not have sin also since John has already eliminated that idea in the first chapter. The language is a little bit ambiguous here for referring to whether it is the love of, if it's our love of God or God's love of us that is perfected when we obey his word. I kind of tend towards a both and in this one. The more we obey, the more we grow in our love for God and then the love of God which is why we can love it all, is then displayed as more glorious. Uh, But this is not applying to somehow an idea of moral perfection. The idea is that uh, the person has genuine and and full expression of love instead of a mere lip service. That's what John is talking about here. And that's because love is active. Love is intentional. Love is deliberate. Love towards God is that way, but also so is love towards people. So parents, you cannot say that you love your kids but don't want to invest in them. Love isn't a feeling. It is a deliberate care towards them. Husbands and wives, you cannot say you love each other but don't serve each other. Love isn't a feeling. God's love for us isn't a feeling. It is truth in action. 
And so God's work in us is evidenced in our walking in him and obeying his word. So for example, what do we say of a teenager who continually misses curfew and says, I don't care what my parents say, I'm going to do what I want. Would you say the teenager deeply loves his parents and therefore submits to their authority in his life? No, we would say that the teenager is loving himself at the expense of his parents. He's loving himself, his ways, his desires, and he wants uh, more than he wants to obey his parents. Or think of a child who is loved by the father. What child, knowing the love of the father, willingly dismisses and ignores the father's voice? And so also with us, love is displayed in our obedience to what Jesus has commanded. And the glorious hope in all of this is that we don't do this alone. In fact, we cannot do this alone. Uh, Notice what John writes here about whoever is abiding in Jesus. See, walking in the light and, and abiding in him isn't something that we just pull up our bootstraps and do. It's not something that you can just muscle through and figure it out on your own power. Consider what Jesus says in in John chapter 15. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So how do we walk in the way that Jesus walked? Jesus loved deeply in giving of himself to others to teach them what God is like and then ultimately to deliver them by his own sacrificial death on the cross. We are not called to die for people on a cross, nor are we qualified to do so. But we are able, by the power of God, we are able to love others like Jesus. Consider our scripture reading from earlier this morning in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. It was a call for Christians to live lives characterized by humbleness and gentleness and patience and a call for us to be eager to maintain unity together. It spoke of all Christians doing the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ to maturity and helping one another stay connected to the head who is Christ. I think this is what walking in the way that Christ walked looks like today. So Christian, what might be one way this week you can serve someone in a similar manner. What is one thing, who is one person you can reach out to in our body this week that you can help stir up love for God by praying for them, calling them up, reading scripture together? Because we're called to not live in sin, but instead to look to Jesus as our righteous advocate to help us abide in him and to obey his word. You know, Jesus describes our lives like trees, uh, that 
bear fruit of what is true in our hearts. Our lives give evidence of what we love. So to know Jesus is not to staple apples onto a tree, but instead it is to walk in the way that Jesus walked. It is to love others so that they would grow in their knowledge of God and their ability to walk in the way that Jesus walked. It is a way to continue in fellowship with one another and to make sure that people don't deny true things about Jesus and don't just walk away from community fellowship, but instead continue in those very things. To love one another is not to think that we don't have sin, but to encourage one another to go to God and confess our sins because we have an advocate before the Father Jesus, the righteous, the Messiah, who is the propitiation for our sins. And so we need to remind each other of that. For our own sake, for the sake of others, and as a litmus of our love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that our love of you too often falls short of what we should do. And God, we, we even confess that our, our love of one another is not at all to the degree of what it ought to be. And so we thank you for the ways that we sin and fall short from those ways that we are called to live out the love that, that you have displayed towards us. We thank you that we have an advocate, that Jesus, in fact, is the propitiation of our sins. But Lord, we pray that we would then grow in our love for you and display that in our love for others. Lord, let our love for you not be seen only in our, our, our individual siloed lives, but in our community together. Lord, would you work in us in such a way that we would walk in the same way in which Jesus walked, that you would help us to abide in him so that the love of God would be perfected. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Praise the Lord that we have such an advocate one who died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third for our justification. What great hope we have that as we abide in Jesus, we will bear fruit and walk in the way that he walked. And so, brothers and sisters, until we are able to meet again, uh, we long for the day when not only we can gather, but when we will be made new, when we will be changed when Christ returns. And so until that day, we continue to live lives walking the way that Jesus walked. So here, our benediction this morning from Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.